Hi, you listen to Poems from My Heart, a poetry podcast with Angela Rideau. Juanita Rea is an artist, a spoken word poet, and also an activist. She works in an organization called Edu Soil, who are doing a lot of great work working with children, particularly around destigmatizing childhood sexual abuse through their initiatives such as yoga and mindfulness. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce this episode, which is also really close to my heart. Here, take a little quick sneak peek. You know, Angela, it is only in the dark that light is seen. This work has shades. This work has darkness. This work is difficult and sometimes uncomfortable and unpleasant and restorative. You know, when it's physical, it's more acceptable. Yet when it's emotional and psychological, there's all these biases. And so we really need to see ourselves as these, you know, these integrated uh, human beings that are a, a sum of all of our experiences, good and bad. artist. Um, I have been all my life um, and an activist in the sense that um, I've, I'm always, I've, I've generally been one of the first responders <laughs> to, to things. Um, what I have found, and that in the context of being a school teacher and just being in, involved in the community, I grew up in South Africa in the middle of apartheid. Um, and, uh, and I've lived in, in various places around the world, all the places that we have um, uh, programs um, in uh, are places that I call home. And um, my journey, uh, well, I believe is, very, is no different to any, any other human being in that we all experience suffering. We all experience difficulty. Um, it is part of the human experience. There's no w way to not experience it. However, mm -hmm. um, because some of what I experienced was within a family home, I spent most of my life feeling like the sense of you know, being clogged up with shame um, and an inability to be open about it. And um, so 2021, I have been sharing my art. Um, with the aim of shedding light into these dark places for myself. And what I found is that it inadvertently does that for others too. Um, although I didn't, um, it wasn't the first time I've written about my, my past. I, I, my, the very first publication uh, I, I have um, around this topic was in 2018. Um, yet I'd say that it's, only this year that I'm standing in my own feet. <laughs> and talking about standing on your own feet, um, there was a poem, sorry, not a poem. There's a post that you shared, which was called, which was hashtag me too when I was a child. And this was such a powerful piece. So please check out hashtag me too when I was a child. I think it's just posts that you've written. Can you tell me a little bit about this post that you shared? What kind of, why did you share it? What prompted you to share it? What's it about? And, and what kind of reaction did you get after sharing this? Okay. 
Um, the only way to do that would be to actually tell you a bit about my, my past. Um, so for myself, um, I'm a survivor of intrafamilial child sexual abuse. Um, it, was, it was childhood rape. I was four in a family home. Um, and I was in that family home because of domestic violence taking place in my home. And, um, and when, I, when this all happened, I, I, it got buried, I was really young. Uh, what, hap what tends to happen when we are that young is, well, we go into survival mode. And so the mind does bury all these things in order to, to survive, right? I wouldn't even say cope because it simply is about survival. And, um, and then as I got older, things started to filter through and I started to remember. I, I just wanna jump though to when I was 20 and I, I found out that there were others um, who had been affected in related ways in my family by the same person. And uh, so it became knowledge within my family about the perpetrator, the pedophile. And, um, and although even though, even though there, it, it became known, it was never a sense of, we need to report a crime. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, we need to report a crime or even we need to take these people or suggest to these people to seek therapy, counseling, all sorts of things, which are all you know, absolutely needed. I am gonna then skip a couple of years again to 2017, which was just before I published that Facebook note. He died. He died and um, a few years before he died, I had tried to make a report for myself. I think it was in 2015, I woke up and realized it doesn't matter <laughs> that it, the law may not be able to actually do anything, but me as a survivor, I actually am I'm guilty of perpetuating the shame mentality by not standing up and saying, this is what happened. And by not making an attempt to report the crime. And so I, I went ahead and I, and I tried to do that. Of course, it, the crime had prescribed according to South African law at the time and I, there wasn't any action that could be taken. However, what happened in 2015 is that I did let more people in the family know this is what happened. So by 2017, when he died, many people knew. Many people in the family knew. I'd say some didn't, but most who were closest to him knew. He died and a public tribute was held for him. Is this by people who you love and people who, you, who knew what he'd done? My extended okay. family, aunt, uh, cousins, you know, people who at various points had offered places of safety and refuge to myself, my mother, my siblings, whenever the domestic violence was, you know. Taking place. Yeah, a few months after he died, the, the memorial was held and it was held in a public hall, in a community hall, and we were invited to it. My mother, my siblings, when I found out, the day I found out, which was a few days before it actually happened, it really felt, and this is not even a metaphor, <laughs> it felt like a nail, that final nail being nailed into my coffin. It felt like my family were prepared to build this monument knowing I was buried underneath. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, that tribute still went ahead and happened in which he was 
honored as being this wonderful father, teacher, because that's what he was. And we know what that means, right? That means that there could have been how many people who were affected by him? Which is shocking, isn't it? There's so many people who might, might not have ever said anything, but you, you try to do something about it, which is more than what most people would have wanted to do, thought about doing. So to, to directly answer your question about the Facebook note, I didn't type Me Too when the Me Too movement happened. I couldn't, I felt silenced by the shame. I was a child in a family, in a place of safety. On the 14th of February, I, I posted that note. It took me from December, from December to February to write it, to get ready to publish it because I knew when I did it, there were gonna be repercussions. And I was prepared for those repercussions and the essence of the, re the repercussions and the consequences can be summarized into this. I reached a point where I knew that I needed to take charge of my own health mm -hmm. in ways that nobody else was prepared to do. And I needed to stop asking them to do it. I needed to stop making them responsible to do that. I, so and you I think felt I the sense of empowerment. This, this was your message and this was your letter to yep. yourself really to explain yep. to people what happened and it was very empowering I mean reading it it's full of so many you're just so courageous Juanita for sharing this because you've done more than many people in that they'll go their whole lives and never ever share their story and never feel like there's anyone that can listen to them but when you shared this I've seen the posts that other people there's so many more than 50 messages encouraging you supporting yep. you loving you can you tell us a little bit about what happened yes. after you'd shared it? Yes, I can. So there were two things that were happening. One was my friends around the world who know me as the activist, who know me as the teacher, who know me as the you know spiritual practitioner read this and they didn't know that this was part of my story. Many, most didn't know. And so I was really anxious about how people would respond. And I just felt completely hugged by so many friends from around the world who said, we will stand with you. We will stand <laughs> in this mud. And, uh, and that just, gosh, it gave me so much encouragement uh, because I think with many survivors of child sexual abuse, there's, there's this niggling doubt. There's this doubt that, that persists throughout in so many different aspects of our lives. And so it, it, it really gave me that. And and at the same time, there were family dynamics happening that were not public. Yes. There was the backlash. There was the accusation of slander and, and all of those things. And how shameful is that, that the people who love you, who are supposed to look after you and care for you, are not always the people who can help destigmatize childhood sexual abuse or even identify, address or have the strategies. And sometimes we as adults or we as humans have to take responsibility and stand in our own mud and sometimes the family we make are not blood related there are other people who come to stand in our mud with us to help us to love us to yeah. support us and keep us sane really there's one more thing i wanted to add there some yes. of the responses that were not public that was private messages sent to me there were many there were many conversations that happened with people privately and some of the conversations that happened were friends telling me, reading my post, led them to have those conversations with their children. Wow. And for me, that 
was it. That was why I did it essentially, because I know that, you know, there's, I can't change my past. It's not, it's not about, this is not, uh, you know, na naming and blaming. This is no. about naming and reclaiming and, and reclaiming parts that are, that are wounded, that are always going to be scarred. And I know this, I am very well aware of this. However, in the naming and claiming, we are also protecting, we are protecting our children. And so those friends, oh my God, they just, I was just completely overwhelmed and, and grateful because they went and had those conversations, you know, conversations which essentially are about bodies. Yes. Bodies. And, and, and that, yeah. And yeah, so. And that's a I, huge thing, isn't it? That's a huge thing that the impact that your work is having is affecting not just your friends and families and the next generation and destigmatizing childhood sexual abuse, but you're doing so many other wonderful projects through EduSoil as well. So that's, that's just amazing. Please tell us a bit about EduSoil. What is oh. EduSoil for those people who don't know? What is it? What do you do? What kind of projects do you do in EduSoil? So first, I'm going to tell you what EduSoil stands yes. for. Everyone discovers ubiquitous seeds of infinite love. Gosh, it's a poem. <laughs> it is. It's a, come on, you have to say that again now. You have to say that again. <laughs> Everyone discovers. Everyone discovers ubiquitous seeds of infinite love. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Edgy soil. And I love it because it relates to, you know, the, the post that you made about standing in your, in, in your mud and the yeah. fact that you've gone to the roots of the problem, the heart of the problem, soil. And you're very, you're someone who loves nature. You, a lot of your poetry, a lot of your art is about nature. So I love that the company's called Edu Soil. So it's a charity. Um, yes. so, okay, I'll let you continue. So. Okay, so it started with a group of friends, my beautiful brothers in India, Anirudh Ashok and Amit Gupta, who are fellow meditators. And uh, they're not, they don't come from edu an education background like I do. I've been a school teacher and um, very well aware of what I felt was missing in classrooms. I mean, there's so many things missing and there's so many things shoved in, right? Where's the space to breathe? Mm -hmm. Where's the space to feel and, 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 and you know, connect with oneself and oh, the mindfulness so, all of those things right and so EduSoil came uh, was birthed with this vision of taking resources and tools into schools into communities into places where people were experiencing challenges and offer simple ways for people to breathe into those difficulties breathe into the bodies and reconnect and so those infinite seeds are always within us and we can discover them in different ways they can be it can be going for a walk in nature it can be writing something that nobody's ever going to read but you know it's just honest and then it, it could be it there's so many ways to express uh, it could be mindfulness it could be yoga it could be gardening the infinite seeds are you know that reminder that healing is always possible it's always possible and there's no one way <laughs> there's so many ways <laughs> and the ubiquitous it's everywhere it's, it's, it is this discovery and uh, and for me that's what healing is, is all about and it's it's not 
oh, I've had experienced this trauma and I'm, I'm healed and woohoo, yay. No, it's not like that at all. It's up and down and it's at times beautiful, at times ghastly and gory and the acceptance that, of that. So that's EduSoil. And a lot of our work has been in communities like displaced communities in Nepal after the earthquake, communities affected by the typhoon in the Philippines. <sighs> Children living in poverty in, in the Philippines, in South Africa, in India. Why? Because I know and we know that most of the world is living in poverty. Yeah. We cannot deny that. Nobody can deny that. And because most of the world is living in poverty, that means that most of the world has the more, most mental health challenges mm -hmm. and the least access to support. And resources. Juanita, one of the things I'd like to ask is, uh, you mentioned earlier this term called intrafamilial sexual abuse. And I read on your website, there's a wonderful article on your website, Juanita.uk, about intrafamilial sexual abuse and the Black, Asian, minority ethnic groups and also SEND, special education needs. And talking about people who don't have a lot of resources uh, and also taboos that exist within the South Asian communities. Can you tell me what is intrafamilial sexual abuse and how does it relate to SEND or BAME communities? Okay, intrafamilial essentially means that the sexual abuse happens within a family unit and more often within a family environment, a home and a family home. I, I wanna talk a bit about child sexual abuse before I go into the others. Yes. Child sexual abuse, refers to a range of things, including grooming, in including behaviors that are predatory, that are preying upon children in order to engage children in sexual acts. And it may not include those sexual acts simply because predators don't have the opportunity to do so. Yet the grooming and the predatory behaviors are child sexual abuse. It could be simply verbal, it could simply be talking about the suggestion of okay, the threat. Mm -hmm. And then it includes rape, it includes, yeah, it could be one event, it could be a number of events. And I think that with child sexual abuse, uh, and this, I had this conversation once with my therapist and there was this, it was really around you know, we know that there's suffering and trauma in the world. And sometimes it's almost as though because the, the, the extent of the violence is so extreme, when we look at what we are experiencing and we compare it to what others have experienced or are experiencing, we seem to we sometimes think, yes, well, it wasn't as bad. Mm -hmm. <sighs> well, it was bad, full stop. Mm -hmm. And it was wrong, full stop. And actually, all of those are criminal acts, full yes. stop. And they need to be reported to be addressed. Now, the interfamilial, like I said, is within a family. Uh, it's, a, it's a member of family. Um, with regard to the communities in which these happen and the complexities of culture, I, yes, of course, you can see I have Indian ethnicity. I am South African, completely 
and utterly South African, right? <laughs> um, when I think about an, the African context with regard to mental health, when I think about uh, the Indian perspective on mental health and not only mental health, also issues at home. So stuff happening at home, how do we respond to it? And that stuff could be domestic violence. And again, domestic violence, it does not include only the physical acts. It includes the verbal abuse as well. And more often than not, what tends to happen is appalling and traumatic and complex and ongoing simply because people have been programmed into thinking, we don't talk about it. There's a whole element of shame within South Asian communities, isn't there? Shame that way you just deflect, you suppress, you don't talk about it, you don't seek help because there's this idea that you don't share your dirty laundry with anyone else and you must put on the perfect everything. You must be the perfect wife, the perfect daughter, the perfect partner. Um, Precisely. And that because there's that sense of, of, of shame around it, and it is, it's everywhere, it's pervading. Victims, survivors are silenced. And from my own experience, I also feel that there's, you know, yes, there the messages around, and from my experience within my family, there was the don't talk about, then, you know, move on and get on and get married and have children, which, yeah, okay. Uh, I, I also silenced myself. That's really, I think a lot of people do that as a coping mechanism, don't they? As a way of coping, because that's what you're taught. You're taught that you shouldn't share your dirty laundry. So you kind of do it to yourself. And I think that the fact that you came out and shared it in your, in your post was just so courageous. I wanted to just unpick something that you said about within certain families that there's this element of shame and domestic violence becomes almost normalized and, and you have to suppress and hide this. Um, how do you think, how, how particularly did your family, and I'm sure you're, you're not the only one, how did your family respond? Because you've touched on it a little bit. You've said that, you know, they said, move on, get married. What are some of the things that they said to, in their mind, help you? Or what was their advice to you in, after finding out that you'd been sexually abused by a family member? It was essentially all of those things, you know. Um, people go through so much worse. And, um, and the whole focus on um, doing something with my life. And for me, doing something with my life meant not just for my life, it was, Eduso was created to to work with others. And I feel that for as long as I was doing that work, which many family members completely supported, very much so, um, I was start silencing myself. I was helping people to take care of their mental health and emotional health, yet I was not totally taking care of my own. And for as long as I was doing what was positive and acceptable and spiritual, I was supported. I was very much supported. And I, I was also encouraged by many family members when I made the decision to be honest about who I am and why I do this work in the first place. How, you know, how did I know as a school teacher which children had those complex challenges at home? How did I know? I recognized it. 
Mm. I could see it. I, and, and how would I know going in a, into a community, how to, how to, I wouldn't even go into all the response around it, right? I would even just start with, how did I know how to care? Because without caring, there's nothing. Yes. And really caring, really caring means I'm here with you as you are falling apart. That's really caring, right? I, and even if it's uncomfortable for me, what you're saying, and it hurts me because it brings up stuff for me, I'm here caring. And so my, you know, to, to think about the family's response, it's been varied. There've been some really hurtful things that's been said to me over the years, extremely hurtful. And for me, I'm now in a place where I know when I think about my family, I've gotten to a point where I've stopped asking them to give me what I know they cannot give me. Yes, you can't change them and you can't elicit anything from them. You can just change yourself, right? Because I was hurting myself and hurting them by continuously asking them to give me what they couldn't give me. And I know that for many in my family, there's, there's so much pain around it. And I know that there's a huge sense of guilt and there's a huge sense of uh, failure. I know that. I know that. I see it. And so part of how I navigate this is by keeping distance from, from, from my family in order to not hurt myself and not directly hurt them. I love them. Mm-hmm. I love them. I know that they did what they thought was right and they did what they thought was helpful. However, when I share my story now, I know that I may be reaching others who may be able to choose differently. Yes. And it's only through my experiences with my family that I'm able to say this. And, you know, uh, I, I do deeply love my family and I, I would hope that at, at some point, you know, whenever they find all of my work, because some, some people have and, and not and all of that, yet I would hope that at some point, maybe there may be a sense of, you know, acknowledgement of, that I'm not doing this to hurt them, yet yes. neither am I seeking anyone's approval. Mm-hmm. This is very important and I want to say this. It's not about the approval because I finally accept myself. Yes. And that's what matters the most. I think so. And a lot of people don't ever get there. They never get to a point where they can look in the mirror and say, I love you. You know, you, you're someone who I love and I care about the most. We often project our love and our care and our uh, attention to everybody, but the person in the mirror ourselves we, we don't care for ourselves but I think before we get onto some of the strategies because I'd really like to ask you about strategies that people use clearly you and I have experienced strategies that haven't been the best but it, you said to me about identifying you immediately were I could identify as a victim of sexual abuse you could identify who had been in that situation or is going through that but for people who might not be familiar and who are listening to this how can they identify um, and how can they, how should they, when talking to a child, react to sexual abuse? Like, so how can they identify someone might be going through sexual abuse 
how can they question them and how, how should they react if someone tells them? Sorry, I've just asked you four questions there. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to answer you with um, a response that I had by, by a family member to my Facebook note at the time. I described some of myself as a child and, you know, you know hair over my face, oversized clothes, standing against the wall, disappearing into, into curtains and furniture. <laughs> and this cousin called me up and said, I remember that. I remember all of that. And then I had another sibling, my younger brother, who actually said to me, when I think about all your behaviors as a teenager, I mean, he's nine years younger than me, so he didn't know me as a young child, right? When he thinks about my behaviors as a teenager, it was textbook so much of my responses and and he's a teacher himself so he mm -hmm. works with children right so i would say this when we are a teacher when we if we're a teacher if we're uh, uh, an aunt an uncle you know if we have, have any exposure to children there the various things that uh we should be uh, aware of you know firstly before into the looking at the response to, uh, to children and, and possible signs, I would start first with how do we position ourselves and how, what language do we use? You know, mm -hmm. as adults, as adults, we have a responsibility to, to protect, right? And so whatever language we are using with children is respectful language. If there's, you know, there's not the sense of body shaming and, um, and uh, uh, um, you know, when children are naturally curious, my gosh, I, I was an, an early years teacher. Yeah, goodness, yeah, yeah. Have, I, yeah, I've been there with children in all sorts of ways, right? Yet, you know, the child who's putting their hands into their pants or under their skirt at the age of five, there's a difference between doing that because it's a natural curiosity because I have this body and I don't know what, what is going on with it. Like, what is this? There's that, right? Which is normal and natural. And if we go, oh, don't do that. We're creating the sense of, oh, I'm not Shame. And yeah, absolutely. That's like it. Like you can't own your body. Yeah, that it's something to be ashamed <laughs> of. This part, part of your body, which is part of your body. So there's, you, we've got to be really careful with over- watching our overreaction, as well as watching to see if there's a pattern of behavior. Mm -hmm. And if there's this pattern of behavior of, uh, for example, I mean, I use the example of, of the touching, which with young children is so normal if it doesn't happen, like, my God. I didn't know that that was normal because I have a daughter who's now five years old and something happened in school and she said oh mommy somebody did this today and I thought oh my goodness this is this is really shameful oh maybe this is something I should be concerned about and actually after speaking to teachers and speaking to friends they just sort of said to me it's very normal children are curious they explore their bodies sometimes they do it in inappropriate contexts in front of other children but it's very very normal and I just thought oh okay no one had ever explained that to me before and I don't work with young children I've only ever worked with 16 year olds and above and okay. so so that's not going to be an issue there but that was really yeah. it's a curiosity to me and it was very new to me so I'm learning all the time as well so you've got that experience so there's a difference between being curious and owning your body and a pattern of behavior seeing and spotting a pattern of behavior yes what what about um 
if a child comes up to you as an adult who they respect and they have the courage to confide in you or you start talking about it, this is a really, really delicate situation because I've been there in a situation as a five-year-old confiding in an adult I trust and didn't get the response that I needed at the time. And I think you've been there too. So what advice would you give to someone who is faced with a four or five-year-old or a child, a young child who's displaying signs of being sexually abused or grooming or something? What strategies would you give them or what advice would you give them? So I'm I'm gonna answer this by putting on my my by tapping into my teacher heart, yeah, school yes. teacher heart. Um, we're taught as school teachers that we have a responsibility of care and protection, and if there are signs, if we were to choose to not respond, we are complicit. Mm-hmm. We're failing. To respond, and for myself, over the years, there are many, many instances in which I, I, I responded not not only in the context of children who were experiencing sexual trauma and abuse, but a range of oh, yeah, neglect being a huge one, huge, right? And um, and so, as a teacher, well, I, you know, knowing I don't have a familial relationship with this child and I have a responsibility when a child raises this I have to take it to whoever it is that I'm working with in order to respond in every every institution there are various systems in place and it is extremely important that we educate ourselves if we're an adult in in a particular you know environment and it's a it's within a professional uh, context to to be guided as to how to respond and and so I think you know you mentioned this there's some links on my website where I I do link to various ways and various organizations and ways to you know to respond in a professional context. I want to talk to the being a family member because it's different. So if you I'm a family member. And there's a child who's come to me, or there's a child who I can see his there's this behavior that, you know, because this this cousin of mine who called me up and after the, the Facebook note and said, I remember that. I remember that about you, but I did not know to read to read those signs. And if I knew, I would have I would have asked. Yes. And he didn't know. And I think that again, you know, I said this about my family, I think they did what they thought was right and they wanted to protect me. I think there needs to be a lot more education around how families need to respond because they, most families believe that they are protecting by shielding the, 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 the victim, the survivor from the public uh, onslaught of, you know, people knowing and the, and the you know, yeah. Will this, will this person be able to get married eventually? You know, those Who kinds cares? of things. It's ah. almost like we're goods with an expiry label on us. And suddenly, if the seal has been ripped, we're invalid. We're no good. You know, we should be exchanged or refunded. And this is what really, really annoys me so much. It makes me really angry because we are not goods to be sold or bartered. You know, we're human beings with feelings and emotions and the shift, the blame, the responsibility is always with the adults, whether they are the ones that are supposed to be protecting you or the ones who are the perpetrators, the paedophiles. Um, and the shift is the, the 
soul-focused attention in a negative way is about the victim and, and actually there's no support for the victim and suddenly the perpetrators get away with it and I think you, you hit the nail on the head when you said if you don't do something about it you're complicit and unfortunately a lot of South Asian families are complicit. Exactly now so what I want to say with regard and to directly answer you if you're a family member and a child has come to you it's really hard yet a crime is a crime yeah. and has been committed. Or if you're not sure that that crime has been committed, it is still, it is still something that requires investigation. And if you are not a therapist, if you are not a legal practitioner, if you are not any of those things, you are not a equipped with the skills, the knowledge, the insight to respond. And further to that, if you are all of those things, you are biased. You mm -hmm. need to step out of the way because if you are a psychologist, if you are a therapist, if you are, you know, a, a person who has some insight into it, you need to recognize that because mm -hmm. you have a family connection, you are always going to be biased. Yes. You are yeah. not the best person to support. But when we look at somebody who's experienced a, a physical um, injury, like let's just yeah. say a physical injury, twisted my arm, or I've, you know, I've uh, cut my, my 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 shin open, it, family members will very easily, very quickly know. Okay, I've got to take you to that person, yeah. And then if there's a, a criminal activity that is that does not involve a family member, another family member if it's some stranger if it's somebody else we're very quick to right this crime is being committed and we need to do something yes. when it's family why do the perpetrators get protection more than the victims so we need to call ourselves on this as family members we need to there needs to be a whole lot of education and change and responsibility and education. I think there's a lot about education, having the right strategies, the right tools, because I think a lot of people would want to help, but they don't know how to help. And unfortunately, people silence, like you said, we silence ourselves. Do you know, Juanita, I think we're at a really, really good point where I know you are an amazing spoken word artist. I love your poetry. That's how we got connected in one of the open mic nights. And I heard you and I just went, wow. And I started messaging you and that's how we became friends. And I'm so grateful for that. So uh, do you have a spoken word poetry piece that you could share with us, please? I do. And um, what I want to say about this is um, while I was writing, I got to this point where it felt like I was turning to the child within me and saying to her, show me, show me what you look like. Show me what you feel. Uh, I, I'm not leaving, I'm not running away. And um, it really felt like there was the sense of going to that coffin and opening it. Rebirth. Coffins are meant to hold the dead where bones and skin turn to dust. Yet I found life there, in coffin where child had died, had died, had died, and lived. Although I left and went far away, seeking, searching, hoping, 
I found life there in the place that I loathed, too ashamed to say, this is me. When coffins are closed, they're not meant to reopen. Who wants to see loved ones decomposing? Yet I found life there when I opened the lid and said, I'm here now. I won't leave you. Although I judged and wished you away, you in coffin, you were always my undoing. Undoing of lies and the shame of existence. You live, we live, I live. Juanita, that was so powerful. You were my undoing. I love, I love, love, love all of your spoken word pieces. This was something that's so beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. It must have been so cathartic to come out and share all your poetry, because a lot of your poetry, spoken word pieces, they are very explicit. And you know, you don't sugar dust anything. You say things exactly as they are. I remember I was at open mic night and you started off with the vagina in the room. And that was an amazing and powerful piece. And mm -hmm. for those of you that don't know, Juanita was a finalist at the Slam in Stanza. It's an Edinburgh International Poetry Festival. And I was rooting for you with my bowl of popcorn. Sat going, go Juanita, you were so amazing in that. And I really, really enjoyed that piece of yours. Thank you so much for no, sharing Angela, that. No, Angela, I wanna say this because we did have the conversation. You know, I knew that you, you, you were there and, and, and I know your background as well. And I know that, you know, whenever we share pieces of these topics, we, you know, we, we as, as artists, we have a responsibility to take care of those who are listening by providing content warnings. And essentially because people may have responses to them. And, yes. and so for me, knowing that you were there and also willing to, to feel that pain and and to cry it is it it's you know it, we're doing it together yes we're standing together in the mud and we're in I the mud together appreciate that so much truly I think that's why when I introduced in the beginning I said you know you have a piece of my heart you're a sister to me a South African sister to me and I will always always cherish that and I love all the work that you're doing and I can't wait for you to release your memoir your poetry collection anything I want to hold your work in my hand so I'm so looking forward to that are there any messages that you would like to leave before we before we go is there anything that you'd like to tell us about that you're working on any upcoming projects to watch out for my art saved me uh, although I, I sought help in the form of counseling and uh, you know, I looked into the legal stuff, you know, reporting the crime, which I, I recognized was important. I did approach my family and you know, various things. I did various, I tried, I, I tried to respond in various, various ways. However, my art practice, and of, yes, of course, I'm a med meditation practitioner and a yoga practitioner and teacher and all of these things, all, they all go together. However, my art was a space in which the ugliness, the pain, the disgust, the all of that could come through. And although it took me a long time to, to not be judgmental of it itself, because some of it is really dark, um, I feel that 
by sharing it with others now only recently joined my first open mic in January 2021 I'm finding that by me saying standing up and saying this is who I am it does help others to hold themselves too yeah there's that sense of solidarity we're not in this alone and that's so important it's so important for us especially with topics that are difficult to talk about so for myself so yes although i've been you know a social entrepreneur and doing this outward community work and i have been uh, a creator of art throughout the years i had this um, compulsion to want to create things that were positive and pleasing and pleasant i i i did and and the the dark stuff i was afraid of it i didn't want to go there i was really afraid to share that because one knowing how my family would respond and two standing in it accepting mm-hmm. this as part of me and so i would say that the creative art has been practice has been the glue holding all these things together which has allowed me and which allows others to do the work the yes. actual work it's our stuff you know it's working with our stuff in a very deep visceral way and so yeah um i i i did you know at times take a step back from the outward community work because i knew that i was um drowning myself in it i was becoming addicted to helping others and in that not helping myself yes. <laughs> you know angela it is only in the dark that light is seen it is only at night that we see the stars shining other stars not shining when the sun is out of course not they're still shining do we see them no you know so there's this there's this fear of the darkness and and i, I everything you said and this is why i wanted to raise this this work has shades this work has darkness this work is difficult and sometimes uncomfortable and unpleasant and restorative and restorative i mean we all have teeth in our mouths and yeah when they came out that hurt right growing physically growing hurts it's, it's called growing pain <laughs> it's, yes it's it's part of it and and yet when it's psycholo- you know when it's physical it's more acceptable mm-hmm. yet when it's emotional and psychological there's all these biases and so we really need to see ourselves as these you know these integrated uh human beings that are a, a sum of all of our experiences good mm-hmm. and bad If you're an author, a poet, an activist, if you've got a message to share, why not get in touch and come on one of my episodes? If you like this episode, why not drop me a message to let me know what you think? You can also share this with your friends and hit the follow button so you never miss the latest episode.